0: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised.
1: On this week's Court TV podcast, we go to Idaho where prosecutors have filed a motion to join the trials of Lori Vallow and her husband, Chad Daybell. What will this mean for their defense? Could it lead to one spouse turning on the other? Court TV special contributor Ashley Banfield is here to discuss it all with me and tell us about her new Court TV show, Judgment with Ashley Banfield.
0: This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinny Politan.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the Court TV Podcast. I'm Vinny Politan, former prosecutor with you. And, you know, Court TV relaunched. I think it was 16 months ago. And so much has happened in those last 16 months, obviously with the rebirth of a network covering trials gavel to gavel. But the other part of what happened was the the shutdown and, and oh my goodness, there's no more trials. There's the jurors are, are locked down. They're not going to courthouses. What are we going to do? Well what we do at court TV is we, you know, we step up, we add more to our, arsenal of weapons right we lost trials for a little bit but we picked up something much bigger because when the courtrooms were shut down we went out and we said you know what we need to bring back ashley banfield bring her back home to court tv and we did it and here she is on the court tv podcast ashley great to great to have you on
2: Vinny, this is so weird because when we used to work together, our offices were next to each other and now our Zoom pictures are next to each other. It's very different. <laughs>
1: <laughs> How great is it though, that number one, Court TV is back and that we're back working together. Let's just get that out of the way here off the top.
2: So can I can I be honest? Let me tell you something. I've done 33 years in news, right? News and uh, legal journalism. And the one thing I can tell you about working with someone like you and the extraordinary talent and and the minds at Core TV is that we do the right kind of journalism. It is in the weeds, it is in the nitty gritty, it is digging into the arcane because that old expression, the devil is in the details could not be more true for News and when you only know the headline or the bumper sticker or the banner, you don't know the story. And what I love about court TV is that they read the case files cover to cover every single day, and those devils are scattered throughout. So, this has been the purest kind of journalism I've ever worked in in three plus decades, and that's why I mean, I'll tell you, I'll tell the listeners right now, I often will call Vimmy. And I'll say, yeah, this thing we're working on tonight—I gotta get your like really deep, deep dive view on this because you know you've worked it. You've been a prosecutor. You know what the heck is going on here, and and that's the collaboration that makes the journalism so good.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, let's get into one of the big cases that we're covering, which is uh, the Daybells, the Doomsday uh, Cult mom and her husband, the Doomsday Prophet, uh, Chad and Lori. And let's get into the the the, the deep. Uh, details of the journalism, and um, what did you think of the sweater that she wore to court?
2: <laughs> <laughs> so here's what's really funny. That is like what could be, you know, uh, a tabloid uh, topic for the front cover of the the New York Post or one of the tabloid afternoon shows like Astra or Access Hollywood. But the truth is that little detail is important because typically you're not allowed to wear plain clothes into a courtroom. Uh, Unless there's a jury watching, then you got to take off those, you know, jailhouse uh, jumpsuits so that you're not prejudiced when the jury looks at you. They don't just see inmate. Uh, They see normal person, right? So the fact that Lori had that pretty little powder blue tight knit sweater on, uh, there's no jury present. I thought it was odd and I couldn't figure out why it happened, how it happened. But I, one thing I knew is that was not prison issue.
1: Yeah. And, and I, I, I think one of the reasons is they really want to, you know, protect the defendants to a certain extent and not have them prejudiced in light of this being such a huge case. Every time they're in court, everyone is watching, especially everyone out in Idaho, but around the country, around the world, they're watching. And and I guess they don't want to negatively impact any potential jurors out there as opposed to the actual jurors who will be in the courtroom. But there's been a huge development in this case, and, and prosecutors have finally made a motion Uh, To join the cases of Lori Vallow Daybell and Chad Daybell, the husband and wife from Idaho, uh, accused in the um, burying of the remains of Lori Vallow's children in Chad's backyard. It's a disgraceful case, you know, accused of lying to investigators as well. But they were on separate tracks for such a long time. Now the cases are joined. How do you think this will impact things? Is this a game changer if, in fact, the judge grants the motion?
2: Yeah, I'm kind of be honest, I just don't think it's a good idea. I really don't. Um, I, I get this sneaking suspicion uh, that, Not good
1: for who? Not good for who?
2: Well, I don't think it's good for the process, honestly. I, I just see it ripe for an appeal down the road. Um, I think it is entirely- Listen, I don't know the details yet. I have not seen all the evidence yet, so I'm not going to profess to know the right answer here. But I have an early opinion, and I, I wish more uh, cable news journalists would, would you know- classify what they say as, I have an early opinion, as opposed to, I know what's happening, and I'm going to put up a sign and run outside. Um, My early opinion is that some of the things that I've heard Lori say sound like she's a bit clueless, um, particularly about bodies buried in the backyard. Sorry for the alliteration, but it's critical here. The bodies in the backyard are what this early case is about. We're not talking about a murder case yet, right? This is not a murder case. This is a concealment of evidence case, right? And lying case. So when it comes to the bodies being in the backyard, I found the phone call between Lori and Chad while Chad's watching the police dig in his backyard and he's parked in his car calling her in the jail. um, I found it very curious. I thought her reaction was very interesting. She didn't seem to know why it was significant that they were searching. She asked, where are they searching, in the house? The first first reaction she should have to this phone call from Chad saying the cops are here and they're searching is, where? And when he says the backyard, it should be, oh, uh, oh. Right? That would be the normal reaction of somebody who's freaking out because she knows the bodies are in the backyard. But if you listen to that phone call, and you imagine for a moment that she knows the bodies are in the backyard, her reaction is completely off. Now that might be getting too deep into it, but that was my initial feeling.
1: Let's do this. Let's do this. Let, let's take a listen to it. Let's take a quick listen to that phone call, and then we'll talk more about it.
2: There' <laughs> The house right now? Yeah, yeah. So Mark needs will be talking to you.
0: What
2: are they in the house? No, 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 the property. Are
1: they seizing stuff again? They're searching. This is amazing. So you were listening to this phone call, and you think this is going to be good evidence for Lori Validae, but like that common sense kind of evidence where, hey, you know, if, if you do there you wouldn't react that way. Why would you react that way? This is amazing. So at, at this point, talking about joining the cases versus the cases being separate, this phone call um, could potentially be used by Lori Vallow and her attorney to say, hey, this is why I'm innocent and the guy sitting next to me is guilty. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and and it's all in the producing. I always say it's all in the producing, right? So if you are trying to defend Lori, I think you explain this all to the jury first, and then you let them hear the call. You don't do it the opposite way. Because if you're listening sort of without any framework, you, you may not notice or hear it, or understand the point that's trying to be made. So first and foremost, you explain this theory saying, This woman has no clue what the heck is in the backyard. And if you need proof of that, listen to this phone call and listen to her reaction. She thinks they're looking in the house and doesn't think it's a big deal. So that's one thing. But the next thing is Vinnie, and I honestly, like we've covered enough cultists from Jim Jones through, you know, Waco, to know that strings are pulled and Spengali type characters do things all the time to their victims. It is entirely possible, given the fact that Lori Vella believed the cockamamie things she believed, that they were about to go to some other life on a certain date in July. It's entirely possible that he had her convinced that he had the children protected in a safe place. But that if she knew about the safe place, the devil could get to them through her. So, look, it's crazy to you and me. But to a cult believer, it may be perfectly sane. I did not put on um, sneakers and a black jumpsuit and and, uh, drug myself to death to catch the Halebok comet. But there were lots of people who did. So people can believe the craziest things. And Lori could have that defense. She could believe that those children were safe, that Chad had taken care of it, and to make sure that they would be on the journey on doomsday together. She may not have known a thing about them being dead and buried in the yard.
1: So you think she's ready, or p- could be potentially ready at this point to give up on husband number five? I thought this was the keeper, Ashley. I thought I thought it was Chad and Lori forever. I mean, have you seen the wedding photos?
2: Yeah, they're they're pretty.
1: I mean, it, it, amazing. They're pretty amazing. Yeah, nice wedding, right?
2: Yeah.
1: And all that all that had to take place for them to be together. All the. People who had to disappear and people who died and things that had to all fall in place for them to finally be together. And now they're not together because they're in separate jails and separate counties at this point. And it makes sense. It makes legal sense. But from a personal point of view, do you think she is ready that those two that given their current set of circumstances, are ready to give up on love?
2: Well, absence doesn't always make the heart grow fonder. And a prison commissary tray has a way of making you hate where you are and finding people to blame for it. So, yeah, I do believe when you're facing life in prison and maybe even death penalty, because who knows what new charges are coming down the pike, uh, yeah, I believe your lawyer could probably crack into your thick skull and take out a lot of that cult crap and tell you what's really going on. And what's really going on is you're going to rot here and maybe die here sooner than you should die naturally, unless you follow my instruction. And that is that guy did it, not you. Wow.
1: I'd, I'd like, you know, we don't get to see this, obviously, those are uh, those attorney client conversations and Man, would I love to be in the the room to, to see what she is saying and, and how um, this is all going to come together. But again, it's a big case. We'll be covering it on Court TV. That's what we do when they're in court. You see it on Court TV. Uh, a lot of these things that happen before you get to the trial have such an impact on the trial itself. And that's why we're in it every step of the way. Now, um, I buried the lead, you know, by the way, today. I buried the lead, Ashley, because coming up next, we're going to talk about Ashley Banfield's brand new program on CORE TV, which is premiering on Sunday, the 13th, eight o'clock Eastern. It's called Judgment with Ashley Banfield. We're going to talk all about the new show. And unfortunately, we're going to talk about what you chose as the subject matter of the first show. (laughs) Again. It was
2: done just to spite (laughs) you.
1: Just to spite me. We'll talk about that when we come back.
0: For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front-row seat to justice. Nine one, emergency. I found out my granddaughter has been sick, and she has been missing for a month. Third, her mother finally admitted that she's been missing. I need to find her. There's something wrong. I found my daughter's car today, and it smells like there's been a dead body in a damn car. What is the three-year-old's name? Kaylee. C-A-Y-L-E-E.
1: Anthony. There it is. The 911 call that started the trial of this century. And I'm talking about the Casey Anthony case. All right? I'm saying her name because I have to report on the story now. And, And I don't want to be... And, and, I, and I don't want to insult anyone, and especially my guest, Ashley Banfield, because the Casey Anthony trial is the subject matter of the first episode of her brand new Court TV program Judgment with Ashley Banfield premiering Sunday at 8 p.m. on Court TV. So um, it, it had nothing to do with me, right? The reason you, you chose this, this trial to be the first <laughs> one?
2: Or is it well, because it's
1: the trial of this century?
2: Well, I like to just needle you every chance I get. <laughs> so I'm just gonna tell you, we chose it just to needle you and get under your skin. But now we, we chose it because we've got some, you know, fascinating new perspectives. Um, it, it, it's so incredible, Danny. but once a decade or so passes, we look through a very different prism. And I think this is one of those cases with a little bit of um, emotional settling, uh, you might be able to have a little more clarity on this case. And I don't mean just you, I mean, you, the collector.
1: No, you're speaking specifically (laughs) to me. I know you are. It's it's directed exactly right square at me, but you know, I'm starting to shake already a little bit, but, and, and the reason I shake is because it was so obvious to me what happened so obvious. So tell me how the approach of of the new show is, and and the and the treatment, and and you know, let's talk about this first episode with with tackling Casey Anthony. Um, um, do you actually tackle her? Because I'd like to see that.
2: <laughs> well, she's elusive. Uh, she's kind of hard to get at these days. You know, she's never done that big sit down interview, and. Uh, she was going to do a movie, and that got scrapped partially due to COVID, et cetera. It was supposed to be her own, uh, you know, editorial take on on everything that happened. Uh, so journalistically, we'd have all gone gu- guffaw, but um, but she wanted that to be the sort of the um, the cultural representation of the, you know, that that zeitgeist that is Casey Anthony. But but what we're doing is we're going right to the courtroom. Because everybody's told the Casey Anthony story with recreations and drama and music and all the rest, and we're telling it from the courtroom. That's where you and I spent those months uh, and months on end. And we think the viewers should come in there with us. Uh, I love the fact that you and I saw the exact same trial and we saw it differently because that's exactly what happens to jurors. They see it differently. Some of them sometimes see it completely differently. That is the justice system in America, folks. And so Vinny and I can tell you right now, on this podcast that we saw the same trial. We were in the same courtroom. We saw the same woman. We saw the same attorneys. We saw the same prosecutors. We saw the same evidence. And we feel differently about the case.
1: Yeah. Feel way differently, way differently. And, and the reason to me, it's just, to me, it's obvious what happened. I mean, how many people said that they smelled a dead body in her trunk? Yeah. How many, how many does it take?
2: Look, I am with you on, on a couple of very important things. Casey Anthony did something terrible. That I I do not think this was a young, innocent, poor uh, kid that got victimized by American jurisprudence. Hells no. And the jurors that I interviewed don't believe that either. Um, I I don't know if I've ever shared with you what I really believe happened that day. I don't know if you want to even know. I don't know if it sort of jades everything. But
1: no, no. Let's 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 go. Let's go.
2: Okay. So I really truly believe it is super plausible that Casey loved her daughter and like a young single mom found her to be a pain in the ass. Um, And I believe that she needed to get away like we all do. Uh, And maybe that one day George and Cindy weren't willing to look after Kaylee. So she had to tag her along. She wanted to go to her boyfriend's apartment, probably smoke some dope, have some relaxation and took the little girl in that beater of a car that she had in June in Florida, right? Hot awful weather and that car stalled all the time we know that from the deep deep dive into the evidence the car was horrible it stalled all the time she had to be rescued regularly I think she put Kaylee in the car gave her a little sleepy time and um, helped it along with some narcotics and the car stalled and I think Casey killed her daughter through negligence and exposure while she was up in the apartment of her boyfriend and, and his friends smoking some weed and having some downtime and when she came downstairs and realized what she'd done panic set in and the awful story began to weave throughout all of our collective conscience consciousness for years i think she weaved that story so deep that almost like oj she believed she didn't do it um but i really do believe that it was it was a it was a terrible negligent error on her part that caused the death of her child and then the lies caused the story that became what it is today
1: and how did she accidentally put the duct tape on her?
2: I, I think that was the cover-up, dear. <laughs> Honestly, like I'm, what I'm trying to say is it was not a first-degree murder. So you're,
1: you're buying kind of what, what uh, Ashton was saying, that uh, you cover up an accident to make it yeah. look like murder?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I really believe she's that kind of person. I believe her lying was so exquisite. Her ability to lie and create lies, you know, fantastical scenario lies. That she came up with the fantastical scenario of if I just make it look like she was abducted and murdered, I can skate. Um, At least I can skate on going to prison. I will never skate on what I've done. I will never skate on the fact that I killed someone I love and that I was so selfish in the desire to just go party. Um, I never meant this to happen. I just don't want to go to prison for life and no one will ever believe me. And my parents will kill me. She's also young not super well-educated, not super experienced at that point. And so there are very few people in this world who are capable of such deception, but make no mistake, there are many people who are, and she's one of them. And so I believe she then set aside days and days while that child rotted in her trunk trying to figure out what to do. And that's why the trunk smelled like it did. I don't think she had the plan ready to go because she never planned for this to happen. She never thought it would happen. She had to come up with something and get the tools to do it. And the child was in the trunk the whole time.
1: I agree 10,000% that she's a really good liar. And you guys are going to be covering in your show the Arias trial as well, right? Jody Arius?
2: Oh my God, there's another one. They're like, they're almost cut from the same cloth except for the fact that Jody planned like Manson. (laughs) to have a bloody you know uh, massacre
1: but let me ask you this and and I have a strong opinion about this who do you think is a better liar
2: Casey Casey. Anthony
1: or Jodi Arias
2: Casey Jodi thinks she's a good liar the the train wreck that was Jodi Arias' trial was Jodi Arias on the stand (laughs) thinking that she had us all in her pocket I don't know anybody who was in her pocket I've never met one person who was in her pocket but Jodi believed we were all in her pocket that was the best part of the Jodi Arias case is that she really thought we were buying the garbage everyone always
1: believes me have you seen my eyes (laughs) I who wouldn't believe me come on this is one
2: of those cases where honestly in this podcast I wish I could swear because that would be the natural thing (laughs) to come out of my mouth when I talk about Jodi Arias honestly
1: so, so, so we'll get, I'm going to get back to Casey just for a second. I know is like, I'm torturing myself with this, but I want to listen to what, uh, cause he spoke with judge Belvin Perry, you know, my second yeah. favorite judge of all time, because my favorite judge is my dad, of course. <laughs> but judge Belvin Perry, who reminds me a lot of my dad, by the way. Um, and, and the way he's so practical and so direct and, and so smart. Um, let's take a listen to him talking about reasonable doubt. Jurors don't know anything. You're painting a picture on a canvas. Everything that you want them to see, you got to paint it in that picture. The defense not only did that, but they did something that uh, most people really didn't notice they were doing. They were throwing out reasonable doubt in every corner that they could. You know, I think Judge Perry, you know, he had the best seat of all of us for the trial and had so much experience watching trials, trying cases and seeing jurors and how they react. Um. His opinion is so valuable, mm-hmm. isn't
2: it? Yeah, and I kept trying to needle him every day as I crossed the street for lunch, and he would go to that same <laughs> restaurant. I just fell in love with him, and I wanted him to be my friend, and I was always frustrated that he was being so stalwart in his you know, position as judge and not you know, fraternizing with the press. But it didn't stop me from always trying to talk to him. Um, it, it, I, I wholeheartedly agree with Judge Perry in that, but for one thing. Jurors usually don't know anything, but in this case they did. Um, in these high profile cases, they do know some things, and there's this extra task of disabusing them of those things and so it's a much harder you know job as a prosecutor and a defense attorney to come into a case where there's a lot of you know I, I hate to say media coverage because media coverage is oftentimes really bad and really wrong. <laughs> and I'm part of the media, so I can say that. <laughs> because I've also come from the core TV school of rock. And, um, and I know how bad non, non-lawyers and non-legal experts cover uh, stories in five-minute segments. They don't do a good job of it. They, they leave out really critical stuff, not intentionally, but because they don't have the skill and the vast you know, foundation and knowledge to, to give these cases the appropriate treatment they deserve. And that's what's that's what's going on inside the mind of a juror. They're getting a lot of garbage as they come in. It has to be sorted, and a lot of it has to be discarded, and new stuff has to be you know supplanted, and that's a really you know uh, thick, tricky wicket to uh, to maneuver when you when you get a jury for the first time in a high profile case.
1: Yeah, I think another big difference in the case uh, it w- were was the personality of the attorneys. Mm. Jose Baez was a, a salesman, mm. so. And he would start every day, "Good morning, ladies and gentlemen of the jury." By the end of the trial, they were responding to him, saying, "Good morning, Jose." And meanwhile, Jeff Ashton um, had an air of arrogance uh, to yep. him in the courtroom. Um, Huge. Yeah, because he well, number one, he knew that Jose Baez didn't even know the rules of evidence during that trial. He did, he couldn't get anything into evidence. Uh, Cheney Mason had to had to do that. And it was obvious to every lawyer that was watching what was happening, but it doesn't matter to the jury.
2: Right, they don't care.
1: At the end of the day, the jury is gonna bond with someone. They liked Jose Baez, they didn't like Jeff Ashton. So when two people are telling you a story and telling you something, you're gonna go with the person that you like. And, and, and I think it's, it's, it's almost that simple.
2: It's so simple. What happened. Oh my gosh, thank you, Vinny. This is what drives me nuts. I came to Court TV as a non-lawyer, right? And I, and I came in and I met all these lawyers and they spoke in such arcanity that I kept saying, wait a sec, you lost me. And that is the critical link in a trial. You have to, I don't mean dumb it down, but you've got to stop speaking as though everybody has your degree. They don't. They are mechanics and hairdressers and they are manicurists and, and they are uh, sales executives and, and accountants. You You've got to speak to them. From the beginning, not from the top. And so I find in watching so many of these cases, that's never lost me. Now I know a lot more, but I'm still the old me who thinks, oh, look at you. You jumped into all of this stuff that the jury doesn't understand, and you're expecting them to get it. And what's happening is they're glazing over, and you're canceling it out. And I think a lot of that happened with these prosecutors. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think those prosecutors lost the case. I don't think Jose Baez won it. The prosecutors lost it. And they lost it from the moment they walked into the court with an air of arrogance. They figured, they looked at this guy, Jose Baez, and thought he's a moron. Took him, what, a whole bunch of tries to get, to, to, to get accepted to the bar. Uh, he was a bikini salesman, whatever it was. They looked upon him with disdain, and it showed. And guess who else they looked upon with disdain? The media. They were rude and arrogant, but for one of those prosecutors. George was adorable. Uh, the other ones, I found them to be very arrogant, at every turn, and Jose was not.
1: No, he wasn't, and and he he made that bond. And that case was very different because you had a, a jury that was sequestered. So this was their whole life. This trial was their whole life for months, and day in and day out, day in and day out, you're gonna you're gonna either create a bond or you're gonna create some distance. And I think that was one of the problems in the case. Uh, to me, the, the other problems were the way it was investigated. A couple of big big blunders in discovering the remains, you know, months after they should have discovered the remains uh, and some other things that were done, but in the, in the courtroom, that was know, the ben, difference.
2: Then that happens. That That's not unusual. We see these things in every single court case, right? Because what does a defense attorney do? They find all the mistakes and, That's not abnormal. What is abnormal? And this is my old Texas expression, right? When I I emigrated to this great country, I I came through Texas and I got all these great expressions. And my favorite one is, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered, okay? And that is what those prosecutors did. They were hogs. They went way too far. They asked for way too much. They said, first degree murder. This woman is evil. She put tape over her child's nose and mouth and watched her die. And those jurors didn't believe that. And I didn't either. I did. <laughs>
1: Listen, Sunday night, will settle it all. Sunday night when we watch Judgment with Ashley Banfield, taking a look at the Casey Anthony trial, and then a whole bunch more. Who else do you have lined up uh, for the show, Ashley?
2: So, you know, Florida is the gift that, that keeps giving always, right, Vinny? So we've got uh, Florida versus Carlton, uh, which was a, a hitman, uh, you know, going after someone's ex-wife. It's always the story you love, especially when they get caught on tape. Um, We have also Florida versus Mark Sievers. Again, a man goes after his wife and hires a hitman, and this time involves his best friend who was a doppelganger for him. And then we go outside of Florida for uh, Texas versus Amber Geiger, which is more on on the recent case files of of court TV. The, The young woman police officer who came home, went into the wrong apartment, saw a man in her apartment, but it wasn't her apartment. It was his. She shot him dead. And so that is another spectacular case uh we've got new perspective from the victim's mom sister and brother um on that case as well we've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of, of awesome stuff that we've called and we picked the best
1: the best of the best sunday nights at eight on core tv ashley thank you so much
2: so good to be on what a fun podcast let's do this again
1: we shall we shall now when we come back Ladies and gentlemen, there was a lesson that was learned from the Casey Anthony trial. And it's a lesson that I want everyone to know, especially if you're ever going to serve as a juror. It's what the difference is between a prosecutor and a defense attorney and the difference between their ethical obligations. And I'll give you a hint. Only one of them is obligated to seek the truth. We'll be right back.
0: Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area.
1: So there's something that most jurors don't realize. You know, when they go down the courthouse to serve on, on a jury... And you see that there's two sides, and and, and I'm talking about a criminal case here. You see two sides, and you see a table on one side, a table on another side, lawyers on both sides. And I think the perception by most jurors is that, yeah, all right, one side's arguing for for prosecution, one's arguing for the defense, but they're both lawyers, and everything's the same, except they're arguing different sides of the case. But that's not the truth. That is not the truth. The difference between a prosecutor and a defense attorney couldn't be bigger. And, and, and I really think there should be more transparency in our system of justice, which is why I'm telling you right now, because the judge won't tell you, because the judge will treat them the same in the courtroom, and you won't think any different. And I think this is a lesson that we learned from the Casey Anthony trial uh, about what the difference is. And in, what it really comes down to is their ethical obligations, okay? Ethically, prosecutors are bound to seek justice, which is the truth. That is their job. That is their role. Okay? That's what they have to do. They've got to seek the truth. Seek justice. That's their ethical, their legal, ethical obligation. Criminal defense attorneys, legal, ethical obligation is only to do what is in the best interests of their client, the accused. That's it. Nothing beyond that. Everything they do. They are ethically obligated to do it if it helps their client. That's what they have to do. That's the way our system is set up. Now, don't take this as a knock on criminal defense attorneys because our system is the best in the world and it only works because it is set up this way. The problem is when jurors come into a courtroom, they don't understand that, so they kind of look at the two sets of lawyers as being, oh, they're both trying to do the same thing. One's trying to convince me of one thing, someone's trying to convince me of something else, and, and I have to figure out who's telling the truth or what the truth is. But what the defense attorney is, is obligated to do has nothing to do with the truth. Let me give you the example here. This is a hypothetical example. If a prosecutor comes into a courtroom and the criminal defendant, they know the criminal defendant is factually innocent and did not commit the crime, They cannot go in that courtroom and argue that they did commit the crime. If they do that, they're violating their ethical obligation. They are putting their law license at risk. They will be sanctioned, perhaps disbarred and potentially criminally prosecuted for knowingly going after someone pointing the finger at them and saying they're guilty of this crime. Now, if a criminal defense attorney does the same thing, okay, criminal defense attorney goes into the courtroom, knows that some third party, whoever it is, that's not his client, is innocent because he knows his client committed the crime. All right, they know their client committed the crime, yet a defense attorney, through the evidence, can point the finger at someone else in front of that same jury. And that is not an ethical obligation. They will not be sanctioned. They are doing their job. So think about how different that is. But no juror realizes it, thinks about it, or even knows that. That my job as a criminal defense attorney is to protect my client. And if there's evidence that could be interpreted to implicate someone else, Even though I know that my client did it because he told me he did it, I'm doing my job. Whereas if a prosecutor points the finger at someone that they know is innocent, like a criminal defendant, and they've indicted that criminal defendant, and they're prosecuting that criminal defendant, and they know that they didn't do it, you're putting your whole career, your whole life at risk. Now, let me take a look at the Casey Anthony trial. What happened there? And the reason this is so important is everything that the defense did in that trial had nothing to do with the truth. I mean, at the end of the day, they said it was an accident. At the end of the day, they pointed the finger at George Anthony as being a child rapist, Casey Anthony's father, uh, as a child rapist, and he's the one who discarded the body, okay? But before that trial ever happened, the defense investigated Jesse Grund, the ex fiance Casey Anthony's boyfriend, DJ Anthony, they investigated the meter reader who, who discovered Kaylee Marie's remains. Why? If all along the truth was that this was an accident and it was George Anthony and they knew that all along, why did they spend time and money, and file motions, and issue subpoenas trying to get information about other potential suspects like Jesse Grund, DJ Anthony, and Roy Cronk. They did it because that's his ethical obligation, is to look at evidence that points away from his client. But at the end of the day, they said it was an accident. All along, it was an accident. Well, if it was an accident all along, and that was the truth, then you wouldn't have needed to investigate these other people but this is an example of a defense attorney doing his job and his job has nothing to do with the truth. And I just hope that all of you kind of keep that in the back of your minds when you serve on a jury, just to give some perspective and and the defense is not doing anything wrong. It's just the jobs are much, much different and nobody knows that. And now you do. Thanks so much for listening to the Core TV podcast. It is great to have you aboard. By the way, uh, I'm on television every night eight to eleven on Core TV, the television network, which of course you can get with a digital antenna. You just have to scan and rescan, and you'll get our signal. And don't forget to check out our show notes. The show notes to this uh, get, get you to some great links on uh, Core TV, and make sure you check out Ashley's new program on Sundays. Sundays at eight, Judgment with uh, Ashley Banfield. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a wonderful week.